Good afternoon, Paul. So today is Saturday, the 5th of March, 2022. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk about desire as it is in the Second Noble Truth. Um, desire, we live in a desire realm. And so when you contemplate the world that we experience through the senses, it's all about desire. So, I mean, it's, it's a natural condition. <clears throat> that we identify with in a personal way. So we have good desires and bad desires. And uh, and then sometimes uh, Buddhism is uh, sounds like we've got to get rid of desires. So I remember when I first encountered Buddhism, I assumed that one had to get rid of desires because it seemed like uh, the English word desire was always connected to sexual desire or desire for power and wealth and things like this. So in the summer life, the monastic life that I was dedicating my life to, I, I assumed that I had to get rid of desire. <clears throat> but then in, in the reflective qualities of a Buddhist teaching when you're uh, contemplating and understanding the first noble truth of suffering, uh, you know, then they, you see how the attachment to desire is what we, you know, is the cause of suffering. This ignorant attachment to desires it's not the desires in themselves, but, you know, it's not trying to get rid of them or substitute only good desires and get rid of bad desires because that we can't do. That's not the way things are in terms of experience. <clears throat> so in the second noble truth, the uh, investigation of desire, and I found this very... Uh, helpful in my first year as a Samanera, just uh, understanding that desire doesn't necessarily anything many, like just something negative or something bad that we've got to get rid of, but uh, is to understand it because we're actually living in a, in a desire form or the form that that I would identify with is a, is a desire body. It's produced through desire. It's, it's a natural condition produced through sexual intercourse that is sustained through food. We have to, you know, in the early years, my mother had to feed me. And then, you know, most of my life is, is uh, you know, uh, the need for nourishment, food. And that's just natural. That's not like, if we take it personally, we make it in some kind of personal uh, problem when it's not. And like, it's natural to get hungry. 
you don't choose it. It's just the way the body uh, needs to survive. It needs to be fed. And uh, the body itself is, is food. So this, this uh, identif identification with food is, uh, you know, because of ignorance. And we don't reflect or contemplate the nature of it. We merely operate from uh, given positions that we acquired when we were innocent children, that, that this body is what I am, and that good boys act like this, and if you act in the opposite way, you're a bad boy. So you, uh, you know, you're trying to, you realize to, to appease, to make your life comfortable in the, in the family you're born into. You, if you obey mother and father, you get rewarded, usually. And if you disobey them, you get punished. So, you develop a sense of survival, you know, a natural sense of survival, because this realm is about survival. We have to eat, we have to, you know, we procreate the species, and we have to survive in, in daily life, just by nourishment, by shelter, by place to live, by protecting ourselves against the weather, and then there's all the uh, environmental conditions uh, that affect us in, in positive or negative ways. So the basic human condition is one of desire uh, for nourishment, for uh, survival, for procreation. And out of ignorance of Dhamma, when we're just merely conditioned to operate according to cultural biases, cultural conditions, social identities, racial identities, gender identities, then we, we operate from a system that is, uh, we, we acquire, you know, it's not natural, it's an acquisition. And so we identify with these desires and like, uh, being a celibate monk, you know, you're forbidden to have any form of, of uh, sexual activity. And so then one can see how one's conditioned to, to uh, regard, you know, like even sexual thoughts as, as dirty and evil and, and because that's how one is conditioned in modern life, at least. I was, my generation. And then the second noble truth breaks down desire into three categories, which is very helpful to consider. So there's kama dana, or sensual desire, which is quite obvious. Like right now, it's, it's turning to spring here in England, and you can see the, the snowdrops and the daffodils appearing, you know, and you want to look at them because they're beautiful. And today was a very rainy, cloudy day and uh, where it didn't draw you out, in, where on a sunny day, uh, where we live in England is very beautiful. So you, you like to gaze out the window or go for walks and enjoy what you see because the sun 
uh, you know, magnif improves the colors of the flowers uh, and the greens on the, on the trees and the lawns and so forth. So this is natural just to appreciate, you know, what is beautiful and what is not beautiful that we encounter through sight, we tend to resist or ignore. So just sensual desire is, uh, is, is the first form of desire mentioned in the second noble truth. Then the, then the uh, second is bhavadana. Now what does that mean? It's a desire for becoming. So that can be noble kind of desires, like desire to get enlightened uh, is, uh, is bhavadana. There's, you know, I, Sumato, uh, want to become enlightened is, uh, you know, a rather, you know, a rather noble desire. And, uh, wanting to get, and then the third category is Whippawadana, our desire to annihilate or get rid of what we don't like. And then the desire to get rid of desire is Whippawadana. So by reflecting on these three categories, you begin to to see dhanha or desire as something that is conditioned. It arises and ceases. You aren't permanently in a state of desire, and the aspirations toward uh, becoming. Uh, uh, an arahant or a Buddha or a Bodhisattva, you know, these are noble aspirations, but they're very, you know, so they're noble, so they're good, but they are a form of desire which comes and goes and is created by your mind. And Wipu uh, and another desire to annihilate, get rid of, is, you know, wanting to get rid of defilements, of wanting to get rid of jealousy, of fear. And um, one can see in, in uh, you know, the, want to get rid of anger. People on retreats often consult me about how to get rid of anger. And the desire to get rid of anger is, a, is what we call vipavadana, desire to get rid of something you have that you don't want. So then one takes the desire, three forms of desire, and observes them as they happen in your daily life. And so in my experience with that, then the, uh, the structure that we live by is called Vinaya, which is a, we're called the precepts about proper behavior, right speech, right action, right, livelihood. So these precepts are, you know, highly regarded in this tradition. So they, they limit you in terms of action and speech. So you, you know, you, you commit yourself to the restraint of the Vinaya or the, this traditional form of restraint, monastic restraint. And then you can observe it gives you a vehicle in terms of behavior and one's speech habits to reflect on them as we live in a community life of Sangha, 
or a community of monastics. So in, in Thailand, they often, some of the ajans talk about killing your defilements. And uh, so this is a, how sometimes it's interpreted even in Thailand. Kill is a rather violent act to, to annihilate defilements. And so on a logical level, it seems, you know, reasonable. So in terms of killing defilements, uh, you know, it is, uh, in, in terms of Whippoa Dunham, killing defilements, you begin to see that that very act of trying to get rid of them or suppress them or resist them is uh, is a form of desire, negative, wanting to get rid of what you don't want. Where the Buddha actually means to understand desire, to understand suffering, then you must understand desire. The realm that we live in is a desire realm. So even in monastic life where you're living in a very a restricted way, a celibate life, you still have these desires that are natural to to the human state on planet Earth, and that that you don't necessarily create them out of intention, but they happen according to conditions. So with the Wadanha, I found because that was a total new way of looking at desire that I really related to because I could see so much of my life had been in this kind of effort to control things, to get rid of fear, to get rid of self-consciousness, to get rid of anger, to get rid of of greed. I didn't want to be greedy. And um, to get rid of jealousy. I didn't like jealousy. I didn't want to be jealous, and and so in in lay life, you know, so much of my, my problems with guilt were around being jealous or or about anger or resentment or fear. You know, like the the American model role model for my generation was men are. Your real man isn't afraid of anything, and but fear is is you know when you begin to understand fear, it's it's a natural kind of survival mechanism, because in planetary life, just a human body, in a wherever it might be in the city or the jungle, you know there's a lot to fear just naturally without becoming some kind of neurotic fear. And it's it's uh, the kind of uh, behavioral protective emotion, and you can see it all around you, like here at, at the monastery at Amaravati, you know, just watching the squirrels and the birds, the magpies and the blackbirds, you know, spend their whole day looking for food. And that's natural. They have to spend their their life looking for food and for surviving. So they're very alert to any possible danger that might come into the garden while they are looking for food. 
And it's instinctual. They don't choose to be frightened. Or it's, it's not greed that they looking for food. It's, it's necessary, just natural product of, of this material form, this food form that has to survive on another material and protect itself from external dangers. <clears throat> so, when you see that it's very natural to be afraid and to get angry and sexual desire is natural and, uh, and that these uh, conditions are seen in very personal terms, this is the <clears throat> this is why we suffer from them because we we see these natural uh, emotional conditions as in personal attitudes of right, wrong, good, and bad, true and false. And then we, you know, then so many in Western life, there's so much problem with guilt, feeling of guilt, because uh, you know the fact that we. We are ashamed sometimes or embarrassed by our animal bodies, by our need for food or sexual experience or, or fear or jealousy because according, ideally, you know, even in, in modern society, you know, you, you look down on you, you know, when you look at dramas or, or Hollywood movies where jealousy is, is, is uh, visualized on the screen, you know, you don't want to have that. You don't want to be like that. You don't want to be a, a man that's frightened of everything or a man that's obsessed with sexual uh, uh, intercourse. <laughs> you know, if, if your ideals are about being uh, pure at heart and good and generous and and brave and fearless, and then all you can do is feel guilty when these uh, very natural emotions arise. Where the Buddha in his teaching was encouraged us to understand these emotions. So Buddha Dhamma is all about investigating and finding out for yourself, not just adopting some kind of role of, of I'm, I'm not afraid of anything, which is is a lie, because there's a lot to be afraid of. <laughs> or to pretend you've never had dirty thoughts in your life, <laughs> or that you don't have them now as a monk, that you shouldn't, you know, you feel guilty about it. Where when you begin to observe de desire for what it is, you're putting it in a in a neutral form, that's impersonal, in which you understand it, you observe, it's, it's something that arises and ceases, you know, that according to conditions that change. And the conditioned realm is, is the experience of change, like the body, the, the, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, what we think, our emotions are very changeable. They're changing all the time. They're, the planet is changing, the sun, moon, and stars are changing, there's all endless movement arising and ceasing, beginning and ending, that we tend to not really understand and uh, 
build a lot of ideals about how we'd like to find permanent stability and safety in a changing world. So, you know, utopian idealism is is created in the mind of, you know, the perfect society where everything is is ideal and perfect and where everybody gets along and there's, uh, you know, shares their wealth and there's no rich or poor, uh, men and women are equal and everything's fair and everybody's happy is, uh, you know, is a beautiful ideal, not to despise it, but it, but an ideal if attached to blindly out of ignorance uh, is going to lead us to despair because the life that we're experiencing through these forms, through these bodies and the senses isn't ideal. And the Buddha in his teachings was pointing, pointed very precisely to the way things are, which are never, you know, life has its peak moments where everything is can seem perfect, where you've got everything you want and the weather's good and your relationships with others are wonderful and and all like that. So we have peak moments in life. But just try to sustain peak moments of worldly life, you know, and and it ends up with despair. You can't do it. When it reaches a peak, they only it means it's, it's at the at its very best. It's going to change, and not for it can't get better than the best, or the, it can't go higher than the peak. So it goes the other way, and it's through understanding this how you know progress and regress are codependent, and birth is the cause of death. You know, when we want you know the Modern, many people want to conquer death and have an eternal, stable life in a human form that never dies. And you know, that's really ridiculous when you think of it. You know, living forever in a, in a human form, living in, in the sensory world with all its dangers and changes that are beyond control, that we have no ability to to manipulate and control in any way, what do we do? You know, so when you contemplate, when then contemplate or reflect on the way it is, then you begin to accept, you know, you let go of these desires. You don't get rid of them. You're not like uh, trying to suppress them or resist them anymore, but you, you, you realize that attachment to these desires is the very cause of suffering. So practically speaking, what does it mean to let go of desire without getting rid of it? Well, to let go of a desire, you have to understand it. Because if you're just trying to let go out of aversion, that's vipawadana, desire to get rid of something you don't want. So... It really, uh, you know, letting go is, is, isn't about rejecting or throwing away or annihilating, but understanding 
that by this blind attachment, this habitual conditioned attachment to the, to these desires, that that is the very cause of our suffering, for our anxiety, for our worry, for all our fears, rational, irrational, justified or unjustified, you know, this realm that we experience in these forms is, you know, quite dangerous. And that's, you know, when you see that, then, and you take it personally, then you, you feel this sense of fear, uh, you know, with all these predictions of climate change and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and droughts and and uh, floods and meteors coming from outer space or alien invasions, all the possible things you can imagine or are happening to us at this time when we when our whole identity is with the forms that are very vulnerable and easily destroyed, then there you know, one is going to spend one's life worried and anxious and upset by things we have no ability to control. Would it be correct to say that learning to let go of desire and, and understand it, in a way means we, to be able to understand it, we have to be willing to endure desire while it's present so we can understand it. Is exactly. That you have to, to understand doesn't, isn't intellectual. It's mm-hmm. not about why do I suffer? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I try to analyze the causes of my suffering with my intellect. You know, is my suffering due to my parental experience or my social position or, you know, whatever, because my nose is too big or my eyes are too small. <laughs> or being abused by others and bullied and so forth, you know, one can trace all kinds of causes for the, uh, through memory of being abused or treated unfairly. Everybody has these these memories, and um, but that's not what we're interested in. We don't need to know why we suffer. It's it's learning to understand it. To understand it, you have to really accept and welcome suffering is more like accepting that it's like this and patiently witnessing it. You know, even even they desire to get rid of it because, you know, like physical discomfort or physical pain, we, automatically we want to get rid of it. You know, it's just natural. Maybe we don't like physical pain. And when it happens, you know, the immediate reaction is what, how to get rid of it, how to get rid of the pain. Uh, and so that's just a natural reaction. That isn't cultural or personal. Because pain is, is un, you know, is unpleasant and don't want it. And physical pleasure is what we want, what, what is desirable, what is comfortable, what is beautiful. So it's, Understanding means patiently enduring. It takes patience. Do not just <clears throat> be caught in first react automatic reactions. 
habitual reactions to experience, but to observe them. To be the witness. It's this, when we talk about reflection or witnessing, it's not judgmental. Like what I refer to as intuitive awareness or consciousness is not a judgmental thing. When we judge our desires and our and make try to figure out why I suffer and who to blame for it, you know, we're making value judgments about ourselves as or about our families or our society, about our politicians, about the climate, you know, we're you know, it's you know, when we're thinking about how I wasn't born in the perfect condition and in a perfect with perfect parents and perfect society, so therefore it's the it's the society's fault, my parents' fault. <laughs> you know, it becomes absurd when you really think it out to absurdity. But when you observe that the suffering of you know how do we we don't do we choose our parents do we choose our social position you know when you know we we find ourselves born into into this family and it's like this did did you actually remember choosing to be born into a dysfunctional family or did that just happen you know, as far as far as I know, as far as I can witness, I I didn't choose the family. I, where I was born and the family I was born into was merely, you know, circumstances that I had no knowledge of. So I can't, you know, I can imagine a perfect family in a utopian society, but families, whatever they are, whether they're very nourishing, wonderful, loving, helpful, uh, wise parents are they're, they're dysfunctional and neurotic, alcoholic and screwed up. You know, these are not really the causes of suffering in terms of Dhamma. So, you know, it's a learning to, to take suffering as and, and and observe it, and you see its suffering is impermanent. If you just react to it by resisting it, trying to get rid of it or blame it on somebody else, you never understand it. You just develop a habit of, re, of the same reactions throughout your whole life. So if you live 500 years, you're going to spend 500 years blaming your mother. Oh, Father, <laughs> unless you understand suffering, that this realm of sensory experience, its very nature, is unsatisfactory. And that's just the way it is. There's nothing wrong with it. And then we can blame God for not creating a perfect society. Uh, you know, everything is, is perfect and beautiful. Uh, so we use God as a scapegoat, we become atheists, or anti-theists, and, and uh, you know, because we, we think, you know, God, according to our 
conditioning can seem like, you know, somebody who created all this, and uh, why did he create pain? Why did he create all these, 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 these survival problems? And planetary life with all these unknown potentials for dramatic changes that we can't even understand or, or foresee. You know, is it God's fault or is it just the way things are that this realm of desire, of suffering is like this? And then this kind of insight, this is an insight, you know, you, you realize for yourself to let go is to relax with it. It's not about trying to just hide away from it because you can't really do that. But if you relax with life and observe it from this awareness, sati sampachanya or, or uh, aware, conscious awareness in the present, then we begin to understand and have profound insight into the way things are in which we don't create suffering anymore. Once we have that insight into letting go of the causes of suffering, letting go of desire doesn't mean we never have any more desires. It just means that for the rest of our life we're aware of the, the cause of suffering is grasping these desires, blindly grasping these desires. So it's a question of being aware of desire arising, letting it do what it does, and allowing it to cease without interfering. Is that correct? Well, it means like, like um, you know, you, 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 you're developing wisdom to determine how to act or not act. Like desire to, to help uh, the poor is a good desire. So you can... You know, you can, but your grasping of that desire isn't out of ignorance anymore, it's out of wisdom. Where wanting to help the poor just out of, you know, out of ignorance can be, you know, very frustrating because, you know, what can I do for the poor and the starving and the situation in Ukraine and so forth? You know, and as a person, uh, is, uh, you know, it seems, you know, it's a good desire to want to help and solve the issues. And with ignorance, then we just, that you want, one just feels kind of helpless or hopeless with so many experiences that we have to experience, that we have in our lifetime. But if we understand desire, then we, the desire to help the poor it's what we do with our lives. What what is our you know how we use our physical forms, our bodies, how we can encourage people to to meditate, to develop wisdom is a, is a good desire. So we can when we have that when it's not coming from personal wishes to enlighten everybody and and you know. It, out of ignorance, we, we, we see this as a personal ambition, 
it's still a good personal ambition, but it, it it's still going to cause you suffering until you see that letting go of that desire doesn't mean you don't do anything. It means you can do something, what you can do. You, you're not overestimating your abilities or underestimating your abilities in the present situation. So right action uh, is through wisdom. Right speech is through wisdom. Right livelihood is through wisdom. Not through some kind of personal desire to to be, to have right speech, right action, right livelihood. Is it that same wisdom that uh, helps us distinguish between what we call desire and uh, chanda, aspiration, like spiritual aspiration? Well, if you're personally attached to chanda, <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it does help even out of ignorance, to attach to aspiration. But that aspiration has to lead to wisdom. So just having aspirations for enlightenment might be very praiseworthy. But uh, it's, but also, if, if we don't investigate this realm that we're experiencing with wisdom, then, you know, we're going to be disappointed. Because the, the illusion of a separate self, of a separate personality, and, and a separate soul is, is an illusion that we, if we don't see through, if we never investigate it, then we, we're caught into, into the natural uh, judgmental habits of thinking. We can't help it. But when we see through that, then our, the flow of our life comes through wisdom, through understanding, and in these Buddhist terms, understanding the Four Noble Truths. Because the Third Noble Truth is the end of suffering. So suffering doesn't mean, like, when you you have insight into the end of suffering, that you don't have any more suffering. It means suffering is the you know part of just growing growing old, getting sick and dying, losing your family and separation from the love. These can still be experienced, but they're not grasped in personal habitual ways. So we can you know, we can transcend the suffering and and learn from it through wisdom. And even if we still experience all kinds of blame and criticism and disappointments in, in worldly terms or political changes or climate changes and that we, we're not going to create suffering around the, the way things are. And it, what we and then with right action we we do what we can do to ameliorate the situation to solve the problem. But there's wisdom there, so it's not taken personally. That you know, if if there's nothing one can do, then one there's nothing one can do. That's the way it is. 
And you find your real liberation is in the third noble truth, in the end of suffering. When you see that in your own experience, that you actually can witness the end of suffering because it does cease. And it's, it's through this insight into the cessation of suffering that you begin to realize non-suffering is your true nature. Or pure consciousness. Consciousness doesn't suffer. Just this consciousness that we're experiencing through the senses, uh, you know, we create suffering around what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. But consciousness itself, that transcends just the limitation of senses, of eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, that transcends that is, uh, doesn't suffer. Is natural, is what we call Dhamma, ultimate reality. Or in Christian mysticism, it would be called God. I hope. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it, because it, it's nameless ultimate reality or Dhamma, you can't describe it or find it as an object. So, but you can know it because that's what you really are, your true nature. And this is like the, the gate to the deathless, is this through this uh, conscious awareness, mindfulness, that has become such a inward at this present time you know, people are really, uh, you know, taking an interest in looking into the way things are, rather than trying to solve every problem and and uh, create endless more problems through sometimes our good intentions. So Tanda is is uh, skillful, but also Tanda for me was was trusting in the Four Noble Truths, the basic teaching, the first sermon of the Buddha. Because I realized that with all my high-minded aspirations, you know, I felt, you know, a total slave to my habits. I was, you know, enslaved to really thinking in negative ways and to, and, uh, and so limited in terms of my emotional habits. So, uh, you know, there was, you know, it was, so the aspiration, the chandra was, was uh, like a, a blessing. It's grace in, that we're experiencing from the universe to aspire to enlightenment or to whatever you want to call it. Liberation, freedom, you know, the, the words don't really matter that much. But in terms of the aspiration, leads you to uh, skillful means to, to make that possible. So my my faith, my trust in, in the Buddhist teaching 
was it wasn't a kind of just blind belief in it. It wasn't just adopting new beliefs that are called Buddhist in exchange for Christian ones. It was because of the practical aspects of investigation, of finding out for yourself the way things are. 